Well, good morning. It's good to be back home in Minnesota. And uh, I happened to be in Nashville this last week with my wife. We had a little getaway. And I talked to the barista at a coffee shop. There's like this really dope like coffee shop called Frothy Monkey there. And so I'm at this Frothy Monkey shop waiting for like monkeys to attack me out of nowhere. I was thinking, you know, maybe it'd be like kind of a cool vibe, like monkeys chilling. And uh, the barista, I ask her, I say, hey, you know, uh, what are people like in Nashville? Like, what are, what, you know, what are people like? Tell me, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me, like, are people nice here? Are they hospitable? And, uh, she, you know, she said, uh, you know, like, yeah, you know, we're cool and all that. And then she goes, uh, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> and right when I said Minnesota, she goes, aha! <laughs> I was like, did I say something? She goes, your accent is so weird. Like, it's, it's really weird. And she thought it was the funniest thing in the world on how we say Minnesota. Uh, but we were in Nashville, and um, it was fun getting to be there. And for those of you who have no idea who we are, uh, Pastor Greg, like he said, um, we're evangelists. So we primarily travel full-time on the road, preaching kind of wherever God opens up a door. And um, we're in some really cool places coming up within this month. We're in uh, Boston. Uh, we're in Texas, we're in um, just a bunch of kind of places all over America, and it's been really fun to be here. And can I just say something real quick before we jump into the message? I love being a part of this church right here called Zoe. Like, I love this church. I love having a home base. And when I'm out on the road with my wife and our family, I get so excited and so jacked about what God is doing here that I sometimes just can't wait to get home to take the hat off and just be you and with you and be at this church. And so if this is your first time checking it out, uh, please come back next week uh, so you can hear from Pastor Greg. But we've been in the middle of a, a series in the book of Malachi. And Malachi is the last Old Testament book right before you get to the New Testament, Matthew. And Malachi was one of the last voices that God used before Jesus came. He was a prophet. He was a spokesperson for God. And so we're going to pick up today in Matthew chapter 3. But before we jump into the message, I brought some pictures that I wanted to share with you. And I brought a picture of my baby girl, Everly, when she was a baby. And you can put her up there. And uh, that's when Everly was a baby. And uh, my wife, one day, she looked at me. She was getting off to go to church. And she said, Micah, would you mind getting Everly dressed for church? And I said, you know, like, it can't be that hard to dress a baby and get her ready for church. Like, it's not that difficult. And so I put on the clothes and brought her to church. And there are these group of women, like, in the front door of the church. And when I brought in my daughter, these women were just kind of looking at me weird. Like, like what's going on with this girl like that he's bringing in and I'm thinking to myself isn't she just adorable like she's so cute she's the cutest thing in the world and a mom pulls me aside and she goes hey Micah did you happen to dress your daughter this morning and I I looked at her I said well yeah I mean isn't she just so cute and she goes Micah I just want to tell you something when you dress a baby first you put on the onesie and then you put on the pants <laughs> And if you're a brother in the house today and you're a man and you saw nothing wrong with this picture, well, neither did I, okay? <laughs> neither did I. I didn't know there was some method to dress a baby nowadays. Like, I'm a man. When I wake up in the morning, I put on my pants and then I put on my shirt because that's how you do things. You go, 
like weird madness things going on in how to dress babies nowadays. Like whatever happened to just simple logic? Still working through my anger issues about this. But I'm like, she's got clothes on her. It looks good to me. She's warm. You know, that's all that matters to me. It looks good to me. And here's an updated picture of Everly. She's in the kids' church right now. That's Everly. She's a little cutie. And uh, a funny story, actually. We were driving home from somewhere. This was during Christmas time. And my wife and I, we get all the Christmas presents out ahead of time before Santa comes. And so we had all these presents out under the tree. And what we're learning is that young children, when they see presents, it means open the gift right now. It means, like, get it done right now. And so we ran into some tension into our home because my daughter and son would try to sneak over there and start opening up gifts. And we were like, kids, you can't open the gifts until Christmas time. And they always thought Christmas time was right now, today, and then the next day, and then the next day. Like that was their logic. And so we were in the van one time and my daughter was just whining, like screaming, whining, so upset. And we said, Everly, calm down. What's the matter? Why are you, what's, why are you so upset? What's going on? And she goes, Mom... I just want to open my Christmas presents now. Like, I want to open them right now, Mom. And she kept whining, and we're like, you know, me being the dad, I'm like, just stop it. Like, just, you're fine. Just calm down. You know, just stop it. And my wife's trying to be the motherly one. You know, Everly, it's okay. You just have to have patience. And then it clicked in us. Like, let's divert her attention to Jesus. So what we did is we said, hey, Everly, we know you want Christmas presents right now. We're going to validate how you feel as a three-and-a-half-year-old. We know you want them. So here, Everly, why don't you try this? Why don't you pray to Jesus for patience to wait until Christmas Day? And you don't know how a three-and-a-half-year-old is going to respond to you. She was throwing a fit. And so it, she gets quiet a little bit, and she starts thinking it through. And we're driving in the van, and all of a sudden, we hear our daughter in, like, the cutest voice. She goes, Dear Jesus, would you please give me patience? I really want my present now, but would you please give me patience? Amen. And when my wife and I heard that, it was like celebration galore. Like I was throwing a dance party, not in the van, but in my mind. And we thought it was the cutest thing. And we just thought we just won as parents. We are training her how to go to Jesus for things. This is amazing. There's a party. There's a celebration. My wife and I are tearing up because it was like the cutest prayer in the world, this innocent child's prayer. And we're just like feeling good about our parent life. And this is amazing. Like we're the best parents in the world. Jesus, you just brought this girl peace like you said you would. This is good and then we're driving and it gets quiet again and then we hear our daughter pray again and she goes dear Jesus would you just please let me open my present right now <laughs> right now Jesus <laughs> and when I heard that as a parent you can't die laughing in front of your kid because it gives them approval to get their present now so it was one of those things where we had to literally control our laugh on the inside and I just thought about that, that isn't that sometimes a lot like how you and I are? God, can we just have it right now? God, but I want it right now. I want it now. God, I want to see it happen now. God, I want this thing in my life right now. 
And sometimes we might find ourselves saying this, God, why in the world do good things happen to really evil people in the world? God, how come sometimes your favor rests on bad people who don't deserve good things, but they get it? God, how come I can't have it right now? God, how come I can't have a life like that right now? And if you hear yourself talking and you were to hold a recorder up to your mouth, it would scream this, it's all about me. It's all about my wants, when I want it, how I want it, what it's going to look like. It has everything to do with me. And I think so often we can be a lot like that where we want it our way. We want it in our timing. We want things being done for us, good things to happen to us. And we can get in a spot where we're exactly like that. And where we find ourselves today is when you look at scripture, you constantly see God and how he made man constantly wanting things their way, in their time, how they want it, when they want it, about them. And they constantly wanted things their way that they constantly missed out on how God wanted to do it his way. So much so that God created man to dwell with him, to be in relationship with him. And then man had the audacity to look at God and say, hey, God, we're kind of sick and tired of you. We want a king to represent us. We want an actual king like all these other kingdoms have. They all have kings, and they lead their people into battle and destroy people. God, we want a king for ourselves. In other words, they were saying, God, we want it our way. We want it our timing. We want things to go how we want it to be done because these people got it, and we don't got it. So we want to be like other people, so give us a king. Or when they're in the wilderness and they're complaining to God, God, I'm sick and tired of the food you're giving us. I'm sick and tired of the manna. I'm sick and tired of the same meal. When all the while, the meal they were actually eating was very nourishing. It was a well-balanced diet. It was for their own good. But yet time and time again, when you look at man through scripture, the common theme is, is God, I don't want it your way. I don't want to wait. I want it my way. I want it in my timing. I want to do things the way that seems right to me or for me. And it always comes down to the man wanting the desires that are own heart and completely ignoring how God does it. So much so that whenever God would send a spokesperson, he called them prophets. They were messengers. They were the voice of God. Look and study what God does through his prophets. He tries to lead them back to God. And every time people heard a prophet speak, this was their emotion. Screw you. I don't like what you have to say. Forget what this prophet's trying to tell me. In other words, they were saying, God, we don't like it your way. We didn't expect it to come this way. God, forget you. So much so that they would often hate or even kill messengers of God. And we might not kill messengers of God, but we sometimes very easily can find ourselves constantly killing the message God's been trying to say to us all along. So much so that where we get today in our passage in Malachi chapter 3 and continuing on, we find ourselves at the very spot what humanity has done all along. And I'm just going to ask you, not out of religious practice or like we have to or these rules, but could you stand with me today for the reading of God's word and where we're going today in Malachi chapter 2 verse 17? And like I said, this isn't like to be religiously right. It's just to have an honor for God's word and what he's trying to say to us today. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. 
Like you've worn God out. Like just how a daughter's crying in a van. I want it now. It gets tiring to hear a kid keep complaining. It gets tiring to hear someone keep whining. It says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. And then the people ask, well, how have we wearied him? What have we done to God? How have we made him tired? And then it says this, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? In other words, the people are like, God, when are you going to show up for us? When do we get justice? How come these people that always surround us always get treated better than us? When's our time? When do we get a break? When are you going to show up? What's going on? And then in verse 1, Jesus gives a response. God gives a response in verse 1. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by as in former years. So... I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And if you just heard all of that, and that sounded like a different language to you, and that just went right over your head, that is why we are here to break it down so you get it. Jesus, I thank you that you love people so much that you're willing to write hard truths so that they might be the people you're calling them to be. And God, I pray for anybody here that they would have a sense of what you're trying to communicate to their life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all can be seated. So here's what you need to understand of what's going on. You have to understand the context in order to understand what God's trying to say to the people. Let me just break it down real quick and real simply for you. These people that are in Malachi... They had just gotten released from being in a different land, the Babylonians. They took them captive. They destroyed things of their nature, of what they loved. And these people now return back to their land. And there were pro prophets named Zechariah and Haggai. Okay, don't worry about their names. But their message was this. Hey, rebuild the temple. Do it quick. Get back to it. Because here's the deal. You and I, when we hear the word temple, we're like, oh, Interesting. Okay, yeah, shiny building, kind of cool. A temple to the people back then meant everything. A temple to them was a sacred space. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. People saw the temple as a place where heaven and earth collided. People saw the temple as a space where God was. And if a temple wasn't there and a temple was destroyed, then to them it meant God was absent and God was far away. When we read this, we, we'll miss it if we don't understand how they saw the temple. Temple was their sacred space. And so when these prophets in Isaiah and Zechariah and Haggai said to rebuild the temple, it meant this. Hey, ho, this is awesome. Our God's coming back to dwell with us. Our identity's going to be restored. The land's going to be restored. We were in exile. Now we're coming back. Everything's going to be cherry. This is going to be fun. This is going to be amazing. And then the temple's rebuilt. But life is still the same as maybe it was before in Babylon to where the people are saying, okay, time out. Uh, we rebuilt the temple. 
And God, you seem to be more absent just as you were in, as we were in Babylon. Like, God, we did what you told us to do. When we thought the Messiah would come, we thought that some rescuer would come, would Savior would come. And God, here's the deal. Where are you? Like, why haven't you showed up? When are we going to get our justice? We're sick and tired of people belittling us. We're sick and tired of people trying to rule us. And now we build the temple and you're somehow absent? Have you ever said the same thing? God, when will justice be served for me? When will my husband get what he deserves? When will my ex get what she deserves? God, when will the person who hurt my family get what they deserve? God, when will you show up and work on my behalf? Have you ever been in a place like that before? And then Jesus is brought up in a beautiful way. God responds to the people by saying this, okay, I hear your cries. I hear you calling out to me. And you're asking when I'm going to show up. But here's the deal. The fulfillment of my justice on what you're looking for, the answer to your question that you've been seeking me for, you are not going to believe it when I tell you and you're not going to expect the answer. But God responds with one of the most hopeful, one of the most encouraging, one of the most love-based responses a God could ever give his people. And this is what he says. He says this in Malachi 3 verse 1. I will send my messenger. You want justice? You're looking for the right relationship. You want things to be good again. Here's my solution to your answer or to your question. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking for will come to his temple. Remember how important the temple is to them? The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. In other words, God's saying this. I got a plan you don't know about. And the injustices you've been carrying and walking around in your life, it's going to come out in a way that will blow your minds. And if you're taking notes, your first point is this. The fulfillment of justice is found in Jesus. This is the exact answer he gives to them. Hey, you want an answer? Here's your answer. The fulfillment you're looking for, it's going to be found in one person. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Savior of the world. And it will be found in Jesus. But here's the sad reality. They were asking the wrong question. Don't miss this. Please lean in just a little bit. These people were asking the wrong question. The question never should have been, will God bring justice? The question should have been, is will they be ready when he comes? Will they be ready when the Messiah comes? And here's why this is a big deal. is because when Jesus showed up on the scene, Someone named John the Baptist showed up as a messenger, a forerunner, and his whole job was this. Call people to repentance, to get back in line. Why? Because someone way greater than me is coming. He's the savior of the world. He's the divine son of God. His name is Jesus, and even I am unworthy to tie his sandals. So here's the deal. I got to become less and less. He's got to become greater and greater. You need to repent of your sins. Turn from your wicked ways because someone named Jesus is coming to bring justice to the earth, to bring the fulfillment of full grace and full truth to the earth. And you got to listen up. You got to be ready because if you don't hear this, you're going to miss it. Pay attention. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and literally every person who encountered him 
almost entirely, completely missed that he was the son of God. Do you realize when a new movement was started back in the Jewish days, this is how they did it. They didn't have Twitter to send out a tweet and say, hey, some homeboys here named Jesus, he's, he's doing something new here. They didn't have that. You want to know how they did it? Someone would come and out loud make an announcement to every town. Attention! There is a new ruler here, a new king who's come to rule. There's a new kingdom being established, and it's through Jesus. That is how the word got out. And you want to know one of the first things Jesus does when he gets the microphone? Attention! The kingdom of God is here. And it's not some far off distance, but it is here right now. And he rolls open a scroll of Isaiah and says, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the prisoners in captivity will be set free. And the fulfillment of all of that is standing right in front of you. I am the son of man. And when we read our Bibles, son of man confuses us because we're like, son of man, that's crazy. Why is that such a big deal? Because Caesar... And the empire of Rome was called the son of man. And the people of Rome viewed their leaders as divine gods. So when Jesus shows up and says, I am the son of man, that statement was a big slap to the face of Caesar. And it came to tell people, somebody new is here. God who you've been calling out for and saying, where is my justice? When are you going to show up? What was prophesied 400 years ago now is standing before them in the flesh saying the kingdom of God is here. And this is so sad because the people in those days completely missed it. Look at some of the first words Jesus ever says when he sits him on a hillside. He came to establish a kingdom they weren't ready for. He came to establish a rule and a new way of life that they completely missed. And Jesus says, this is how it's going to be done. You think I came to show up for your ways and your pleasure to make you comfortable. You think I showed up to somehow appease you. You think I showed up to obliterate Rome, to destroy the empire, to take the smack down to Caesar so you can have your lamb back. You are completely missing out on how I'm going to bring justice for you, and not just for you Jewish people, but for every tribe and every tongue, every nation that would ever believe in me. And this is how he says it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not the strong Roman guards. It's not the strong Roman military. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, he's saying this. Blessed are people who know they're jacked up and messed up. Blessed are people who can barely make it to the next day. Blessed are the people whose life is falling apart because then the gospel can meet them. Those people are blessed Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's not going to be in military might. It's not going to be in violence or by a sword. It's going to be those who mourn and cry out, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, so they will be shown merciful. 
Don't you remember, God, the Babylonians who treated us horribly? Don't you remember every empire who's come around us and destroyed us and hurt us? And you're telling us you're not going to strike someone? You're not going to kill someone, Jesus? You're telling us we're not supposed to rally around and create a revolution and attack people and lay our lives down? Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom that I came to establish on this earth, the fulfillment of my, G of my kingdom will be found in mercy you will be found in treating people not how they deserve to be treated. It will be found in mercy. This is mind-blowing to a first-century Jew who is hearing the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. It won't be the arrogant. It won't be the people who want it their way and the way they want it and how they want it. It's going to be the people who are pure in heart that are going to actually see me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, Jesus showed up and literally flipped the script in every single mind who heard him. He was going to do it a different way. Know what blows my mind? Look at every great empire that's ever been on the earth. Take Rome. Take Alexander the Great. Take even the United States. Whatever you want to talk about. Every one of them had their start. And every one of them had their end. Their downfall. The greatest movement to ever start has never stopped. It's never had an end. The greatest movement that Jesus came to be about had its start, a new kingdom, a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things. And it was never used by popularity. It was never used by fame. It wasn't used by money. It wasn't used by violence. Not on how we do things in the world today. But this movement that Jesus started was a completely new paradigm shift and still exists today in the kingdom of God as it lasts forever. It was a new way and the fulfillment of justice that they were looking for went right over their heads and they completely missed it. It was found in Jesus. Have you ever been wrong before? Have you ever been mistreated? Have you ever been around someone and felt like they were racist? Have you ever been around people that feel like they don't speak up for you? Have you ever been hurt by a spouse where they left you? Have you ever had a mom or dad walk out on your life? You ever wonder why someone gets cancer close to you and dies? You ever wonder why your sibling has a chronic disease? And you're wondering where the heck, why can't this happen to somebody else? Why does it have to happen to me? You ever felt poor and been reminded of how poor you are, how broke you are, how you'll never get out? You ever been caught up in a family that wish you never had? You ever been to a place like that? Have you ever been misunderstood and so wounded by somebody's words? Have you ever had an injustice happen to you? Now take that for a second. And now let's contrast to what happened to a man that turned his cheek when he got hit. Let's contrast that to a man when he came to this earth. He was spit upon. He was lied about. He was misunderstood. People despised him. People hated him. The religious power-centric people were ticked off at him because they were messing with his plans. If there was anyone, 
If there was anyone who ever knew what it meant to have injustices happen to them, it would have been Jesus who was stripped naked for the whole world to see his naked body. It was Jesus who took shame on him. It was Jesus who had accusers. Yeah, see, if you're the son of God, you wouldn't have to die on a cross. But angels could come and take you off that cross. Why don't you prove you're the son of God? Hey, if you were really Jesus, you wouldn't have to die. If there was anybody who took on the worst injustices of the world, it was somebody named Jesus so that you never had to live with injustices ruling your mind and heart because you knew someone took your place for you. The fulfillment of justice was always found in Jesus. And that's the answer God gives in Malachi 3. And many biblical scholars believe that one verse is the bridge that connects the Old Testament into the New Testament when Jesus shows up to fulfill it. And Jesus actually says in Luke 11, hey, remember Malachi 3? Ding. Here it is. Fulfill. How can people not trust in a God that have verified documents, proof of historical texts, seeing prophets speak about something, and see it come to fulfillment. Maybe it's not a matter of logic. Maybe it's what it says in 2 Corinthians, where it says a veil, the God of this age has put a veil over people's minds from seeing the gospel. Not only is the fulfillment of justice found in Jesus, Steph, you can come on up. Number two, is Jesus, he's going to purify you. Jesus will purify you. In Malachi chapter 3, it talks about what's going to happen when Jesus shows up. Hey, I'm going to send somebody. Hey, someone's coming. A messenger's coming. Jesus is coming. Verse 2. But who's going to endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Because he's going to be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He's going to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he's going to purify the Levites and refine them like gold. And silver. Jesus, and when you follow Jesus and you receive him, you can expect to be put in the fire. And this point, I hate. I hate being purified. I hate the fire. You want to know why? Because the fire hurts. It's painful. It doesn't feel good. I want to get away from the fire. I don't want the purifying in my life. I want to do it my way. I want it in my timing. I want God to show up when I want him to show up. I want things done on my timetable. You know what real love is? Real love isn't comfort. Real love isn't always even about you. But real love is putting you in a place and a posture that brings the best for you and makes the best you. But it's going to hurt, and it's not fun. And it says of Jesus, when he comes, all the corruption you've been facing, all the injustices you're complaining about, God's going to come through his son Jesus, and he's going to make everything right again. But you're not going to like it, because it's going to mess with you. And it's going to mess with your heart. And it's going to make a pure you. It's going to cleanse you. It's going to wash you.
the best way I could think of it, it's like this glorious pain. It's really weird to explain. I, I, I think one of the best ways I can explain it is when I go to the gym and get a workout in, here's how I know it was an amazing workout is if the next day I get up and I'm like, oh, my word, this hurts. This is painful. This hurts. Like, I hate working out. But then as you keep walking throughout your day and the fluids come, you realize it takes pain to become stronger. You realize it takes a breaking down of you to be made right for you and a stronger you. God does the same thing to you and to me, and I hate it. I hate the fire. I want to get away from it. When Jesus came, he didn't lower the standard of morality. He didn't say, oh, yeah, keep on sinning. It's okay. My grace will forgive you. No. When Jesus came, he actually took the bar that was set for people and went like this. Boom. I'm raising it. Oh, you think adultery's bad? If you even think about a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. He literally took what God said and gave law, and he raised the bar. Why? Not because he was a God that was going to care about all these rules and keeping people in their boxes. Because he came what Malachi 3 said he was going to do. He was going to put people in the fire. He was going to show them how spiritually bankrupt they were. That there's no way they could do it in and of themselves. There's no way they could purify themselves. Yet that was what the law said they were supposed to do. To be ceremonial clean, you were supposed to go into a water and be baptized so you could wash your hands and wash your feet before you ate a meal. There were all these laws to clean yourself. And Jesus raised the bar saying, you've been doing this for years, but it was never my end plan for you to be pure. I am going to put you through the fire. What happens when Jesus rides on a donkey? This is powerful. Jesus comes in on a donkey. This is another prophecy being fulfilled. And he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And people are praising him. Hey, Hosanna, the king is here. A new kingdom is here. A king is going to come. Overthrow the Romans. The king is here. Jesus is coming. I happen to be in Israel over Palm Sunday and had one of the most chill experiences, like chills in my body. On Palm Sunday, I got access to walk the eastern gate of where the temple would have been back then. I got access to step on ground that hardly anybody gets access to. And I had a bone thrilling moment. It's Palm Sunday. I'm on the eastern gate. It's where Jesus would have come into the temple. And I hear these horns and these people cheering and screaming. And I look, and it's a parade of people coming down the mountain of the Mount of Olives, walking into the city. And I get a picture in my mind. This is what it would have looked like. Jesus riding on a donkey, everybody loving him in one moment, but going to hate him in the next. Everybody thinks this is the new king, but will despise him in the next. And what does Jesus do when he's on the donkey? It says Jesus weeps. He's crying. He's not saying, look at me. He's not excited. He's crying. And you want to know why he's crying? It's because the very people he came to save are the very people that are missing out on what it means to have a new kingdom. And he is weeping through it all.
And he says, oh, how I wish I could gather Jerusalem under my wings. Oh, how I wish I could just save them and be under them. Oh, God, I just wish they could see it. I'm not coming to overthrow Rome. I'm coming to do something new. I'm coming to make relationships right between God and people. God, they're missing it. He came to purify. What did he do next? After he got off the donkey, he rolls up into the temple. And what's going on in the temple? All this corruption is taking place in the temple. You want to know what was happening? The people who are supposed to be leading a great practice for people to find God were filled with corruption and made it all about money. They were taking advantage of widows. They were taking advantage of people with how much money they put in. It was corrupt. And so Jesus shows up in the temple. And what does he do? He purifies it. He shows up. It's like, ah! Boom! Throws over tables. Boom! Throws over the money changers. Not because he's some angry God, but because he wants purity. And he wants to see it done all along what God wanted done. You know the passage where it says the widow put in all the money she had? You see those two little coins she put in? She put in everything? That wasn't about how much the women was putting in. It was about how corrupt the system was that they were taking advantage of a woman like that. And God wanted purity. And he cleans the house. And he says, since when did my temple be all about robbers and thieves? But my place was all about being a house of prayer. He cleans house. He purifies. And people hate it. I hate the fire. I hate purifying. It says that Jesus will be like a refiner who refines silver. Don't miss this. If you've checked out, please do everything you can to come right back. What does a silversmith do to refine silver? How do they do it? They take the silver and they put it over the hottest flame possible. In other words, the silversmith takes the heat and turns it way up. And he holds it over the fire. And when you ask a silversmith, how do you know when the silver is done being purified? The silversmith will tell you. The silver is purified when I can see my image reflecting back at me. You want to know the whole goal of purity? It's not about laws and rules. It's about the image of God reflecting out of your life to a world that when they see you, they don't actually see you, but they see the image of Jesus staring right back at them. He came to purify you. Oftentimes when the trials and the fires come, we don't want it. Some of you are walking through a trial and you're walking through a fire right now. And you might be exactly like Paul. God, take this away from me. God, take this from my life. And God says, hey, you want me to take away the very thing that's going to purify you. So here's the deal. You want me to remove the trouble? I ain't going to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the heat up, but you better believe my grace is about to be turned up in your life. And my power is going to be made strong in your weakness. Paul recognized that to be pure like silver meant walking through trials that he hated, but he recognized the power that comes through Christ when he is weak. Purity isn't about did I look at porn or not this week or did I take a hit or not this week. You'll run yourself mad. Purity is surrendering yourself to Jesus, 
so he can bring the fire and put you over the hottest part of the flame till he can see his image back in you. I have one question for you, and it's kind of your big so what. Don't put the big so what up on the screen yet. Don't put that up. You heard how Jesus is the fulfillment of the injustice in the world, and you've heard how Jesus, he came to purify you, but I have one question for you today. Are you in total surrender to Jesus? You can put it up. That's what we got to ask ourselves. Are you, am I, in total surrender to Jesus? In verse 5, it ends by saying this. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers. Real quick. In the Hebrew here, the language it's written, the participles are trying to say this. These list of sins I'm about to go into, they've been habitual in your life. They've been continuous in your life. So God lists out sins. They're asking for God to show up and bring justice, but he responds back to them by listing out habitual sins they can't break free from. So I'll put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers. You've been involved with sorcery. You've been involved with adultering, perjurers. You've defrauded laborers of their wages. You've oppressed the widow and the fatherless. You keep doing this. You want me to bring justice in your life, but you're oppressing the widows and the fatherless. You deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but you do not fear me. You don't care about me. You want me to bring justice in your life, and I love you so much, but you keep getting caught up in the same habitual sin. What are sins in your life that are habits that you can't break free from? And now let me ask you a question. Are you in total surrender every part of your life to Jesus? Because he didn't come for the rules of you. He came to be with you. Because he loves you. And the whole book of Malachi is not this wrathful God. It starts out in verse 1. I'm writing this to you because I love you. I love you. You've been whining like a little girl who wants a present. But you just wait and see how good and how loving I've been towards you and how patient I've been towards you. All I want in return is I want your life. I want you to surrender your habits to me. I want to purify you in such a way that I can see my own image in you. 